0: Okay, why don't we stand and read the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. We're going to read through to 16. But flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light. Whom no man has seen or can see. To him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's have a seat. So before we get started this morning, I thought I'd mention to you that we only have two sermons left in First Timothy, and we've completed the book. Uh, it's hard to believe that we've gone through it that quick, um, but I pray that you've been as blessed as I have in going through this, uh, these, the, uh, this letter. It's probably in all my seven years, and going into my eighth year of ministry, it's probably been the favorite book I've preached on in my favorite sermon series so far. But it's gone fast, but it's been a good time with you. But like I said, we've got two more to go. And So we have one today and one next week and that'll be over. So let's let's just jump into today's passage Uh, In verses 11 through 16 by way of introduction uh, Paul repeats a pattern that he's already done twice before in his letter The pattern has been this so far after Paul calls out the false teachers for their heretical teaching and ungodly behavior He often follows this up with a word of encouragement to Timothy and a charge to fulfill his ministry duties this is the pattern we saw in chapter 1, that after calling out the false teachers for their strange doctrines, he said in verse 18 to Timothy, This I commend and entrust to you, Timothy, my son, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. So a calling out and then a charge to, perse- to persevere. He, we see this in chapter four as well. Um, he labels the false teachers there of having preaching that comes from doctrines of demons, and then later on, in that same chapter, he says, "But you, Timothy, pay a cl- pay a close attention to yourself and to your teaching." He says, "Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and be an example to other believers." And he was to do this by not neglecting the spiritual gift that was in, within him through the laying on of Paul's hands. So here we have this pattern in chapter 1 and chapter 4. Now we have a pattern again. Remember in chapter 6 and verses 1 uh, through um, 10 so far, he's calling out the false teachers for all sorts of error. And now we have one final charge in 11 through 16 for him to fulfill his ministry duty, to remember the the prophetic gifts and remember the gift of the Spirit that he's been given to do these things, and then um, to persevere in in everything. So the question would be, then, that I was thinking about this, because why the pattern? Why this pattern, after like three times? Well, Paul doesn't tell us exactly why. He doesn't say, "Here's why I'm doing this." But I think from us who've been here through this whole time, when we read through the letter, we can see uh, why this would be. He's in a serious and tough ministry in Ephesus. It's a hard go. Paul planted this church. It was on fire. It was a huge light to the to the, the city in Ephesus, and they were just on fire for the Lord. There's a huge revival breaking out. The elders take charge of this church and put it in total disarray. The gospel is being maligned, and and everything's going sideways. The widows are off course. The young women are off course. Uh, uh, there's like they're abandoning marriage. They're not having children. All sorts of crazy things going on. There's arguing in the church. Dissensions. Everything. So Timothy comes in as a single guy and the church was probably made up of thousands And he has to turn this thing around by the power of God and by the the, the discipleship that he's been given by Paul You would definitely need a word of encouragement and a reminder to To remind yourself of the day that you gave yourself to the Lord a reminder of the day that you ordained to go into ministry a reminder of the gifts that God given you for the graces to do this job and a reminder to persevere in all these things. This is Paul's final charge to Timothy in the letter before he closes it. To fulfill his ministry duty. And this really becomes clear when you notice all the action words in this. In this, For those of you who are Bible geeks like me. And you like to circle things and underline things. This is your chance to pull out that pen. There are five action words that tell that show you that this is a full-on assault and that he has to persevere. You ready for them? Verse 11, flee. Flee. Verse 11, pursue. Verse 12, fight. Verse 12, take hold. And verse 14, keep the commandment. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold, keep. These are the, this is the charge. These are all action words. They're verbs. Um, I think they're verbs. <laughs> Not a grammar major. Pretty sure they're verbs. Okay? But these are five imperatives. And so what I've done is I've um, taken these words and, and made them all very similar and changed the language. So here's the outline for today's sermon Timothy is to flee, follow, and fight. He's to flee, follow, and fight. And under fight, he's been given two charges. You get to firmly grip and to fulfill. Okay, got it? He's to flee, follow, and fight. And he's to firmly grip and fulfill as part of that fighting ministry. So let's look at fleeing in verse 11. But flee from these things, you men of God. That's what Paul says. That's the first thing he he's to do the word flee is to in greek is the same as pretty much in english It's to run away from quickly <laughs> it's to uh, escape it's to escape it, it describes how the disciples so quickly abandoned jesus that night when he came and got arrested they were out of there like a shot now what are these things that he's referring to well everything paul's warned about in verses 3 through 10. flee from their heretical teaching flee from their argumentative nature flee from their arrogant personalities Flee from the divisive nature their ministry had. And most recently, and probably what he has most in mind here, is flee from the love of money. Flee from the love of money that has plunged these people into evil and has made them wander away from the faith, according to verse 10. So Paul's concern then was that he was to run away and escape any of these things because he didn't want them to fall into the temptation of the false teachers who previously come before him and put the gospel at risk, and put the ministry in jeopardy. And I thought about this, you know, church, like, it's a good reminder to us that following Christ is about fleeing from things. (laughs) Fleeing from things, running away from that which is evil and that tempts us to sin. And I wanna tell you one of the most incredible fleeing stories that I've ever heard in my life. And I put myself in that person's shoes as a teenage, uh, teenage 18 year old boy and I think, how in the world did this guy do it? So this is the story. I went to Breakforth in Edmonton about 12 years ago. And I was enrolled to be in the, uh, all the classes I chose were the music classes. I thought, I want to learn to song write and to do all these things. I went to one class uh, in the morning, finished that. And then in the afternoon, there was one woman preaching on David. Her, she was doing a three-part series on David. And I was only enrolled for one of the three classes because I was in music for the other ones. I went to her, her uh, session on David, and it was so good I disenrolled from the music ones and just stuck with her for those th- that week. And this is the story she told. She talked about King David and how he went from being like, totally sold out for God for slaying Goliath to all of a sudden pulling Bathsheba into his chambers. How does a man go from doing that? How do you go from the only one in Israel with the courage to flee, but to kill Goliath and face this giant? And next thing you know, you can't face the temptation of this woman. So he went, she went through the principles of what happened in David's life. And then she told this story. Her 18-year-old son had maintained his virginity throughout uh, high school. But he, but he was, um, it was his grad. It was his grad week. And... Um, he gone with this girl from the school on this, uh, on this ceremony. And because he's 18 now, like he's fully grown, he's on his own, and he's doing his own thing. His mom and dad are not following him around. Anyway, the date um, had really showed not too much interest in him, but she obviously liked him because they went to prom together. And uh, at the end of the night, she had basically uh, booked this hotel for her to stay in or something. And she had lured him into this hotel, and, but he didn't know what was going on. Uh, I, didn't, I can't remember all the details. Oh, I know what it was, actually, no, I do remember. She, she had said, come and meet some of our friends. We rented this hotel room, so on and forth, to have a party kind of deal. He walks in to the thing, apart from a date, he opens the door nobody's in the room except her. And she happens to be unclothed and in her bed. So he's 18 years old, maintained his virginity his whole life. He's raised in a Christian home. He knows God's principles and he's there. He's there. And he gets up, he looks at her and he literally turns around and runs out the door straight back home. Runs out the door straight back home. When his mom, he tells his mom everything he ha- that happened, she couldn't believe it. But here's the thing, I put myself on his shoes. I don't think I'd have been so lucky. What a tremendous testimony to fleeing, fleeing in a situation that is so incredibly tempting. That's the call, though, that he's giving Timothy. Some of the things that these false teachers would have been doing, would have been probably tempting to go down. Especially as they're pulling in all the cash and Timothy's not getting paid the same way. <laughs> right? But he was to flee these evil things We are told as believers to flee From things that tempt us into disobeying the Lord and running away from him But not only was Paul to flee from something and to run away from something he was to run towards another Which leads to our second principle he was to follow he was to follow he was to pursue righteousness godliness Faith, Love, Perseverance, and Gentleness. Now Paul lists six individual qualities here, but I think they're best understood in couplets. The first couplet is Righteousness and Godliness. Both of these qualities have to do with living rightly. Righteousness is really one's desire to live right on the outside. Ethical behavior, pursuing justice and so on. Godliness is one's desire to live rightly on the inside. And It's about one's commitments to the Lord and his personal devotion the second couplet faith and love appear together in every list in the pastoral epistles and I was reading my commentaries and they call them the the supreme two virtues of Christianity because they always appear together faith and love faith and love Faith of course your firm conviction your belief and your trust in God and love Which is your willingness to be self-sacrificial self-sacrifice is the essence of love and it's the gospel in a short message The final couplet is perseverance and gentleness. And these two attributes are basically required if you're going to live victoriously as a Christian, especially in the midst of trial and hostility. Uh, Perseverance is this idea of endurance. Endurance, the ability to withstand and stick with something. And gentleness, uh, which means to be kind or considerate to others. Now what's important about all these qualities, is this is all what the false teachers lacked. They lacked these virtues. They were argumentative, they were abusive and so on. Whereas Paul was calling them to be, for example, gentle. But more than this, these qualities were in line with the Gospel and the life that Jesus emulated himself. And the false teachers, really, what they were doing is they wanted to have a world in which uh, they could receive temporal gain and it was about building up their kingdom. These virtues, though, were about the world to come. They had eternal value And they're all about pursuing god's kingdom so again he was to run from one thing and run towards another are we known as people that seek after these things do we follow after righteousness godliness do we live as ambassadors for the lord and what's so that our behavior is observable to the outside world are we known for being loving people is our is the motivation of our life and our essence of our existence self-sacrifice for others, or is it more about me and what I can get out of this world? How about generalists? Are we known for being able to resolve conflict and deal with people in considerate ways? Or are we known as the person we should run from when the rubber hits the road? And I speak to those of us who are married Generalists is key in marriage a lot of people are really, good as spouse, like, are really good with strangers, super gentle in dealing with strangers, but then it comes to their husband or their wife and it, the switch turns, the gentleness is gone. Again we, are t- we have to run towards, flee from the, the, the argumentative side of being a spouse and move to the gentleness side of being a spouse. Finally, or not finally, thirdly I should say, we're to fight we to fight. Fight the good fight of faith, Paul says. Now, this is an athletic metaphor, church. Um, it means to be a combatant in the public games. Or it refers to a race or a contest. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things in order to receive a prize. Um, the word athlete here is the same word Fight. It's also where we get the word agony from, or agonize in English. And you know what agony means. It means to be in huge pain, or to struggle intensely. When you put this all together then, you get the idea of what Paul's asking him to do, in terms of his fighting. He's in a battle that's going to require extreme self-discipline and intense effort to come out victorious. But of course the winning here that Paul's talking about is not athletic, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. He's to fight the good fight of faith. And you remember this passage in Ephesians 6? We know it well. But again, what I like about this, this, this passage in Ephesians 6 is remember Timothy's in Ephesus. <laughs> so he's in Ephesus, fight the good fight of faith. This was written to the Ephesians, the same church people by Paul as well. And look at the look at the word here. Finally be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the fumes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The fight is ultimately a spiritual one. It's against the devil and himself. In fighting for the faith, that's your major opponent. Yes, you might be dealing with individuals, but ultimately the major opponent is the the devil. So what are you fighting for in terms of the faith? Well, you're fighting against error, doctrinal error in the church. You're fighting against sin creeping into the church. You're fighting for disunity that wants to keep in the church and all these things. But as I was preparing, I realized the fight is really summarized in two words. Do you know what the ultimate fight of faith is? What are we actually fighting for? Why are we coming here? What are we doing here? What am I doing here? What are we all? What's the whole purpose of witnessing and evangelizing? Two words: the fight is for the soul. That's the whole thing. The fight is for the soul. Jesus came and died for what? Eternal life. That's what he died for. To give you forgive you so that you could have eternal life. The whole thing's for the soul. Ezekiel 18 is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Listen to this, the prophet. <clears throat> then in the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth throw set on edge. Then he says this As I declare, says the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins will die, the soul who sins will live. And he says this to Ezekiel, This matters so much that if you do not shepherd these people correctly, and you don't do this, if you don't warn them, the sins of those people who die is also on your back. <laughs> because you didn't say anything. But if you say something and they still sin, then you're relieved of that, that, that um, responsibility. The whole thing is Israel is, is losing their soul in rebellion. They're not fleeing from what God had told them to flee from. They're not running to and following what God prescribed for them. How about Matthew 10, 28? Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is so concerned about the soul, He says, don't worry about your body. Even if you die, don't worry about that. That's not what you're seeking to preserve. Your your whole fight is to preserve the inner man. That's the whole purpose of this thing. That's an incredible passage. The body is secondary. The soul is primary. What life is simply about in fighting the good fight of faith is soul care. (laughs) Soul care. Right? That's what it's about. That's why my job... My job is this: I do everything in my <clears throat> power and in my calling to ministry to ensure under like my watch as a shepherd that I set you up as a congregation to receive eternal life and receive the glory that God's called you to. My whole job is to care about your soul. That's the, my whole job. If you're heading into sin, I, I, it worries me. If you're struggling, it worries me. If I don't think you understand the gospel, it worries me. My whole job that I'm set to do with with the Spirit's help is to care for your soul. That's what we're fighting for. Now the fact that one's eternal destiny is ultimately what we're fighting for is made clear in verse 12 as well. He says... Take hold of etern- the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's unclear what Paul has in mind by the good confession here. But due to the fact that his, his confession is linked to eternal life, it was probably the declaration he made when he committed himself to the Lord. He made Jesus Lord in, in his life and made him king. Likely in his baptism service and so on. But we don't know for sure, but that's likely it. But what's cool about this and key about this is that Paul says, Timothy, I want you to take hold of it. That word means to seize, to seize, to get a good grip on something. He says, Timothy, get a firm grip on eternal life. Seize that thing. This leads us to an important question. Why would he tell them to firmly grip on to eternal life? Didn't he already have it? Well, think about what's happened in Ephesus so far. Read verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They didn't firmly grip onto the eternal life that they've been given. How about chapter 1 in verse 20? He says, um, Keep a good faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have been handed over to Satan so they will taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander, these two men, didn't hold on and firmly grip onto the eternal life. this important, church. Paul, Timothy is to hold on to this. Yes, he was. He's been justified. Yes, he's, been, he's got the promise. But he's, he can't, he's just like any of the false teachers. There's a potential for him not to hold on to it. This is why earlier in four, chapter 4.16, Paul said this to him. Watch your life and doctrine closely, Timothy. Persevere because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's an incredible charge to him. He has to hold, he has to hold on to this. Now, I understand that many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord don't understand salvation this way. I get this. They believe that once you're saved by Christ, it's a guaranteed right to future that you're, you're in. Well, that's not the message of 1 Timothy. And there's other scriptures in the Bible that speak to that as well. And we have to understand the biblical understanding of salvation. It's a now, but not yet reality. Now you're saved. You're saved, but you're not fully saved in the way God wants you to be in, the, in, the, in the heaven. There's a difference in terms of what you're going to receive. Now you'll have pain, you'll have tears, you'll have struggles, but then you won't. Now you have a, a, a body that wastes away, then you won't. You'll have a perfectly resurrected body. There's promises for heaven that are only for heaven. That glorified body. Here we're justified, There will be glorified. They're different. We've been given a deposit, like an inheritance here, a promise, but we have to hold on to that promise. I'll leave you with one passage to think about. I mean, this is so clear. Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Why do I like that word calling in the Hebrews passage? Because look at verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life into which you were called. It's the same word. Okay? He says, verse 12 through 14, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin and deceitfulness. We have come come to share in Christ, if Indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Here's a question, Paul. What if I don't hold my firm conviction to the end? What if I don't? Well, what's the opposite of this? This is important, church. I mean, uh, like I said, I know we separate ourselves from some of our fellow brothers and sisters and our theology in this, but this is the biblical language of Timothy. And this is the biblical language of places like Hebrews. where to take hold of eternal life. Seize it, don't let it out of your grasp. You do that by fleeing, you do that by following, you do that by fighting, you put those things into action. The last imperative that Paul gives to Timothy in order to strengthen his resolve for this task and to ensure that he still embraces this idea of being a man of God is to fulfill his calling. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. What Paul means by the commandment here that he's to keep is unclear because the text doesn't tell us what he's thinking. But when you look at the rest of the letter and other passages, you can get a clear understanding of what he probably has in mind. I think what he's saying here by keeping the commandments is this. I want you to be committed to faithfully preaching and teaching the Word of God. Be faithfully committed to that. Because in 1 Timothy 4.13 he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading and teaching of Scripture. In verse 14 he says, Don't neglect the spiritual gift of teaching this within you. And in in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So again, I think it's pretty clear that the command he was to keep was the continual preaching and teaching of God's word. And notice how he was to keep this. He was to do it without stain and to do it without reproach. In other words, he was to do it free from any blemish and to be blameless. And I think the context helps with what he has in mind by being blemish-free and blameless. Uh, in verse 3, he says, uh, If anyone advocates a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine of godliness, he's conceded. So the idea there is that um, to be blameless and, ble- and to be blemish-free is to preach doctrine that's in line with the Lord's teaching, and conforms to godliness. But I think there's one, one fun clue as well here in the, right in their text. Notice how he says, I charge in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who testify the good confession before Pilate. But what was Jesus' uh, testimony to Pilate? They get in a debate, a little discussion at the end of his life and they says, so are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus says, are you asking this on your own accord? Or did someone tell you that? And they go back and forth, and then Jesus says, "I am rightly the King of the Jews." And he says, "But my kingdom is not of this world." So, what's the confession? I am King. <laughs> I am the Lord, but not, but my kingdom is not of this world. I think for him to for Timothy to preach without saying reproach is to continue that message. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord, and uh, He His kingdom is not of this world. That's that's part of our teaching here. We I mean we encourage you here. Uh, all the time with the way we teach by saying this, we are living here and now but ultimately the world we want to be in is eternity we bring God's kingdom to this earth but we want to be re- actually receive the kingdom he has for the future promise One thing Paul tells Timothy too is that he's to continue in this blameless, blemish-free ministry until the return of Christ. He says, Do this until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Now, from the letters in the in the New Testament and writings of the apostles, we know that they lived with the reality that they thought that Jesus could come back within their lifetime at any moment. The apostles thought, you know, that Christ's return will be could be any any generation. They all lived with that hope and readiness. They also had learned, though, through through Jesus himself, that the timetable for his return was ultimately in the Father's hands. Ultimately in the Father's hands. Remember, those of us are in Acts chapter 1 right now in our men's Bible study. We just learned that last week, right? Remember the disciples say, Is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does God or What does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or the dates of the father's ret- or for my return that's in the father's hands that's in that's in god's hands he knows that that's for him to know he didn't deny the kingdom coming he denied the timeline because only god knows that those are the original 11 he was speaking to and look here in verse 15 paul moses as well he says he god will bring this about at the proper time the return of christ And this leads, this authority and this knowledge that only God has. And, and, the, and, the, and the responsibility of like, setting that in motion. like All these things are so incredible to Paul. He, leads into, he loses his mind in a spirit of praise. Look at this in verse uh, uh, 15b. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unappro- unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We see something cool in Paul. The fact that the Christ's return is only something he knows and that he ultimately has authority and all these things leads him to lose his mind and all sorts of praise. And he leaves, Paul with a, he leaves Timothy with a great reminder. Despite the opposition he's facing and how powerful they may seem to be, when he's going up against these guys. Timothy serves the God who is truly powerful, who is the supreme ruler over all, and whose glory is unequaled and overwhelming. A good reminder for us too, when we're struggling to persevere (laughs) about the attributes of God and who He is. So what do we learn from today? Well, I've basically just taken the five points and summarized them once again because all these action words dictate the passage. The attributes of a godly person are such, they flee from sin, they flee from sin. They don't casually walk by, they don't uh, saunter and take a quick gander. They run as fast as they can. They get out of Dodge, they're an 18 year old boy in a hotel room in the midst of seduction, they're out of there. That is the way the Lord wants us to approach any temptations that we face. Things that were ungodly, unrighteous, that don't pursue love, that don't pursue perseverance, that don't pursue gentleness. He wants us to flee from those things. He also wants us to follow after righteousness and godliness and all these attributes. So we're to flee from one thing and run to another. He sets a course on a path and dictates the walk of our life. Pursuing these attributes is exactly what these are. These are things that are important to the Lord and are eternal in value. They have eternal value. He also wants us to fight for the fight for uh, truth in the souls of others. You fight the good fight of faith by, you know, preaching the word, correcting sin, fighting for unity. All these things, but ultimately, it's about soul care. How do we fight? Well, a couple different ways. You teach the scriptures in the original context and you, and you teach the teachings of Jesus. You witness to your friends and family that don't know the Lord. You're an evangelist in the way you approach people. And you can pray. A lot of the prayer, the battle for the souls of people is done in the prayer room on your knees. That's where the victory is won or lost. So we can witness, we can pray, we can teach. These are ways in which we can fight. And a part of fighting is to firmly grip onto eternal life. Remembering there's a soon but not yet reality to our promise of eternal life. Yes, we've been given the inheritance now, but we have to continue to walk in Christ's way and not be known for practicing of any sin. And finally, we're to fulfill our calling. You and I, or I shouldn't say I, but you. <laughs> You uh, may not be responsible. Well, I guess me too, yeah. We're both not responsible for the church in Ephesus. So our, 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 our calling looks different. But we're all given our own roles. Maybe you have the role of mother. Raising kids. The role of father. The role of boss. The role of employee. We have to strive to keep those commands in the way he, God wants us to live those things out. And do it with a blameless and um, stainless approach. We live this way to be Christ honoring as much as possible knowing that he's returning. That's the whole point. And I don't know about you but I sure would love to hear when he returns, well done my good and faithful servant. I'm sure Timothy heard Heard those words when He appeared before the Lord after He passed away.